we're in a series talking about the kingdom and the kingdom of God. And there are really two kingdoms, and we're going to talk a little bit about what happens when those kingdoms collide. See, God is the creator and sustainer of all life, and he is the righteous ruler over every square inch of earth and over every individual. And when he created the world, he decided that he would like deputize some rulers. And in Genesis chapter one, he said, let us make man in our own image. And so he created male and female and he placed them here on the earth so that they could rule over the earth. Well, there was another angel by the name of Lucifer, who we call the fallen angel, who is Satan. He had other plans. And what he wanted is not for God to get the glory, but for him to get the glory. So he saw an opportunity and he came and, and he came before Eve there in the Garden of Eden and he tempted her and he deceived her. And he convinced her to shift her loyalty and, uh, and allegiance from God over to himself. And so she began to think that what maybe she wanted and she saw things that were that were pleasing to the eyes and would make them wise and so she ate of the fruit and shared it with her husband sin entered the world and all of a sudden satan had set up his own little kingdom here in this in this realm of our earth and a kingdom a dark world of sin and of death and so there's that influence that he has in the world but yet overarching there is god who is sovereign ruler and so you have god sovereign ruler but then he's got this kingdom of satan here and so what God decided is he said, you know, what we're going to do is, is we've got to take care of that and we've got to allow people to have a relationship with a holy God. And because once we're sinful, we're separated from him and, and, uh, and there's got to be a sovereignty over this kingdom. And so that's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ. And it's interesting throughout, um, really throughout history, Whenever a king wants to be powerful and maintain that power, it's always bloodshed. And whether it goes from Alexander the Great to Adolf Hitler, or whether you go from Stalin to Saddam Hussein, you see this long list of bloodshed. But God's kingdom was different. There was going to be bloodshed, but the one who was going to be sovereign was the one that was going to shed the blood, and that was Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes as God's son, and he goes to a cross and he bears all of our sins, all the trash, all the dirt and dies for our sins. And then three days later is raised from the dead, which means that he conquered sin, he conquered death. And that's, that's Satan little, his realm over here. It's temporary. And Jesus says, I've won that victory. And then later, one day, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to consummate all of the kingdom. And it says in the book of Revelation that it says the kingdom of the world, thinking about Satan, that will be under God's sovereignty. And everyone will proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And so you have these two kingdoms and they're going to collide. And when they collide, there's going to be a lot of activity <laughs> that's going to take place. And we want to show you where these two kingdoms collide. And it's in Matthew chapter 4 to where Jesus is preparing for his ministry and Satan is doing everything he can to keep that from taking place. And as we read this passage, we're going to see that today there are two competing kingdoms, kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan. 
Even though in the end Satan will be defeated, he continues his quest to supplant God and to blind people from the truth about Jesus Christ and salvation. And so if you want to get a picture of kingdoms colliding, this is it in Matthew chapter 4. Now, Jesus has just come off of the baptism. We talked about that last, uh, last Sunday. And in that baptism, the Trinity was, was there. It was Jesus, the Son. It says the Holy Spirit descended on him. And God the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What an experience. And then at that, right after that, it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone." And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. I want to get some truths out of this passage and just what goes on even today when we see kingdoms collide. Are you ready? When kingdoms collide, the first truth is this. There is a battle for the hearts and souls of all people. We are in a battle. And as long as we have breath to breathe, there will be a battle going on kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. And there is a battle for the souls and the hearts of people. And what they're wanting is each kingdom demands your loyalty and each kingdom demands your worship. And you're the one that will make the choice. Choose the kingdom, kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. There is no demilitarized zone to where you can get in and to where you can live. And what I mean by that, I remember when I was following, uh, I remember reading about the Korean War and even they had it in the Vietnam War, where there's a place between North Korea and South Korea, uh, South Korea, and they would put a line here and there's a land that was called the demilitarized zone. And in that, there's not supposed to be any fighting. It's, it's just a place of peace. But, uh, but, you know, it's not North Korea, it's not South Korea, it's just the demilitarized zone. And too often as believers, we think, or just as people, we think, well, I'm either, you know, I'm not sure if I want this kingdom of God, and I don't think I really want that kingdom of Satan, so I'm just going to hang out right here in the middle ground, just in the demilitarized zone. There is no demilitarized zone. You're either in God's kingdom, or you're following Satan, and you're going his ways and his will. Second, temptation intensifies as kingdom impact intensifies. Temptation intensifies as kingdom impact intensifies. If you look at the first few verses, it says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came and said to him. Now, Jesus had this baptism experience, which was to initiate his ministry. Man, the the Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. God spoke to him, just as we said, uh, you know, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. And he's getting ready for ministry. And then he goes off in the wilderness for 40 days. 
And this 40 days of prayer and fasting was not something, it was not a physical thing to say, hey, Jesus, need to cut some weight before you get ready to start on this ministry. That 40 days of prayer and fasting was extensive communion with the Father. And so for those 40 days, he is in communion with God. And it was not like he was in a bubble to where Satan didn't tempt him in those 40 days and then he tempted him at the very end. In fact, in Mark 1.13, it said that he was being led into the wilderness being tempted by Satan. So throughout this 40 days, Satan is tempting him in different ways. But at the end of the 40th day, when he's got a clear vision of his ministry, when he's getting ready to leave the wilderness and move into ministry, at that most impactful time, Satan comes to him. And he's got three temptations he's going to give him. We just need to always remember that as our kingdom impact intensifies, temptation will intensify. And so I think that probably every person here, you can be a testimony to that. And we can just read the newspaper and read the lives of individuals who are just hitting a lick for the kingdom, who had a lot of prominence in the kingdom, and then all of a sudden, their life fell. Satan tempted, they gave in, their ministry was ruined, their family was ruined, and you just see the, the effects of things that fall apart on that. And it's scary stuff. And you know, any pastor, no matter the size of the church, whether you got 20 or 2,000, is, is kind of got a bullseye on him. And that's what Satan wants. There's nothing more he would love is to take me down, take Michael down, take down any of our staff members over here to be able to not just take us down, but then take down our influence and then try to destroy the influence of this church. And that's why I can just tell you as a pastor how thankful I am for the number of people that are praying for me and for my family, and I know that for all of our staff. And, and there are people that are, that are sitting in the back rows and up in the balcony and, and people in nursing homes and people that are shut-ins that will drop a note every so often just say, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. And to know it does not go unappreciated. And our church has done some amazing things, and we are getting geared up to really take an incredible next step, we believe, over this next year and a half, getting geared up for it. And so I already know I can just look at this point and say, temptation will intensify as kingdom impact intensifies. So we appreciate your prayers. And not just praying for us, but praying for each other. Because it's whenever someone falls, it's a black mark on the church and on the kingdom. And so we all need to be bowed up, ready to go. All right. So number three, when you look at this story and you look at kingdoms collide, the third point is that Jesus must be perfect in humanity to reign over humanity. Just write this down. I'm going to explain it. Jesus must be perfect in humanity to reign over humanity. Um, I've been brought up uh, on the, on hearing the Bible story. And I remember even as an eight-year-old being told that Jesus never sinned. And they said, Jesus was, lived a perfect life and he never sinned. I just kind of took that in and just accepted it. But, you know, when you really begin to think about that, you know, that's, that's 33 years of living, no sins. 33 years of living, no sins. That's over almost 13,000 days of living. It's almost 300,000 hours. I can't go 24 hours without some kind of sin. And he goes 300,000 hours, no sin, perfect. And we look at that and we go, wow, but let me give you something that I began to get goosebumps the more I read this. If Jesus failed once, the whole plan was shot. 
He had to be a perfect sacrifice. He had to be perfect in order to be reign, in order to reign over humanity. He had to have lived a perfect life as, as a human, 100% man, 100% God, to live that perfect life so he could go to the cross and be the sacrifice. There's no way God could say, hey, Jesus was 95% and that sacrifice will work. No. God required a perfect sacrifice. And so when you begin to read this temptation and you begin to read all throughout Scripture as different temptations came, he had to be on his game and he had to be perfect, okay? In Genesis, Adam was perfect. He was a perfect man and he stood before and he stood before the temptation and he gave in and he failed. Israel was the nation that God had set apart and they were to move ahead and they were to be this kingdom of priests and they failed. And now here's Jesus, perfect man, standing there looking at the tempter and the tempter's throwing out another temptation. Will he also give in or will he succeed? Number four, Satan's intention was for Jesus to bypass the cross. Satan's intention was for Jesus to bypass the cross. As you're reading through the New Testament, anytime you see any type of temptation towards Jesus, it is that Satan wants him to bypass the cross. And even Satan understands that if Jesus goes to the cross and dies for sins as a perfect sacrifice, then you're beginning to see his, his kingdom crumble. And so he has to do everything in his power to get, to get Jesus and to keep him from the cross. And so he begins to get him to question. He gets him to question three things. Number one, he got him to question God's will. Question God's will. In verses three and four, he says, if you are the son of God, and that is not a phrase saying, hey, do you think you're the son of God? No. He's saying, hey, if you're the son of God, and you are, you've got some prerogatives. You know, you can do some things that we can't do because you are the son of God. So let me tell you what, I know you're hungry, it's been 40 days, you haven't had anything to eat, and uh, I've got some Sister Schubert rolls uh, kind of smelling over here, but wafting this little smell. You've got some little stones here that look like bread. Why don't you just go on and take those stones and turn them to bread? Just, just go on and do that. Now for a lot of us, we can sit there and say, well, what so, would be so bad about that, to do that? Well... What Jesus did was he laid aside all of his divine privileges when he came here on earth. And he laid aside all his divine privileges so he could live life as you and as me. And that he could experience everything that we experience, yet experience it without sin. And in order for that to be a reality, it means he had to lay aside his divine attributes. And if he was sent out to the wilderness, led by the Spirit of God, then he also had to trust that God would be the one that would supply whatever need he had. And what Satan was saying, just slipping up beside him, in essence was, hey, you're a son, be independent. Just go and turn these things to bread. Bottom line, you don't need to trust God. Just kind of go your own way on there. But Jesus understood what God's will was. And he understood what his plan was. And he knew that in order for him to be the perfect sacrifice, he had to be obedient and trusting of his heavenly father. And so that's why his response was, he says, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And that is, if I'm going to be a son, I've got to be obedient to the Father. And I'm going to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, it captures this. He says, therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Because he's gone through the same thing, he can help us. In Hebrews 4.15, he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted just like we are. Satan questioned God's will. And Jesus says, I'm staying with God's plan. I'm going to be obedient to him. And what I'm going to do, I'm not going to look in at, at maybe your logic. I'm going to focus on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Number two, he questioned God's plan. He questioned God's plan. In verse five, the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. So the rabbis taught that the Messiah, whenever he showed, would they felt like would appear at this particular corner of the temple. And it's at the highest point. It's about 450 feet high looking down to the Kidron Valley. And so there was being taught by rabbis of that day that we'll know the Messiah because he will be there at that point on the temple. Well, and now all of a sudden Satan is saying, hey, Jesus, why don't you get up on that point of the temple? And he says, you know, I know a little scripture myself. And so he quoted from Psalm 91, and, and he quoted it right here. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. He said, I know a little scripture. I'm going to share it. Well, Satan missed a few words in the scripture, and, and that's, that's not so much where the problem is. The problem is he misapplied the scripture. And it's like that God's going to protect us in any harmful situation that we're in, which is, which is not true. But in essence, what he's saying to Jesus is, listen, I understand our first conversation. You've declared your allegiance to God and your trust in God. So I'll tell you what, do something heroic. Show how much you trust in God by flinging yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. Because in Psalm 91, it says that when you do that and you're falling, doing this free fall, his angels will come and they will catch you and they'll keep you from hitting the ground. He said, come on. Kind of push God's button a little bit. Show him how much you trust him. You say you're his son. Come on, show him. Jump off there. He'll bring his angels down there for you. Now see, what happens is that if he does that jumping off and all of a sudden there are angels there and they catch him and there's a crowd out there and they see this, immediately they're going to say, this is the Messiah. This is the king that we've been thinking about. And all of a sudden, he's got this national following, and it's going to make it so easy. And you probably don't have to worry about the cross because everybody would have already seen this happen. This is the way to go. Questioning his plan. You see, his goal is for Jesus to bypass the cross. And if he could do this, that could probably help him to be able to accomplish. A lot of people following him, you never need the cross. So he's questioning, does God really know the best way to gain a national following? Do you really think that you've got a better plan? I know God's got his plan, but do you think that you've got a better plan? Because I'm telling you, his plan doesn't look real good. But this one looks pretty good. Question God's plan. 
You know, this happened way back in Genesis. When God chose Abraham, he says, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Abraham says, I'm an old man, don't have any kids. He says, don't worry, we're going to take care of that. He kept getting older and older and older. And his wife was barren, and he says, I don't have any kids. And so Abraham and Sarah came up with their own plan. And they said, well, let's, let's get this uh, servant maiden by the name of uh, Hagar, and we'll have a child through her, and that child's name Ishmael. And maybe that will be it. And God says, no. And sure enough, when Abraham hit 100, he says, now you're going to have a, have a child. And he had a child, Isaac. And the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac have been battling for thousands of years. It was Abraham and Sarah's plan, but it was opposite of God's plan. And it made sense in their eyes, but it went against what God said. And now we have got history, thousands of years of history, to show the impact of that particular mistake. See, what Satan wants to do, he wants to question God's plan. And that's why when he opens up God's word, and we look at things in God's word, our world will do the same thing to where we want to change God's plan. Uh, you know, it says Jesus' response to him, he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. King James says you're not to tempt the Lord. And you see, we tempt God and we test God when we question his plans. We look at what his word says, and we don't think that plan brings us as much joy or immediate gratification. So what we do is we change the plan. Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9. Mark 10, 6 through 9. Look what Jesus says. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's God's plan. A man and a woman would come together. They would be married. They would marry until death do us part. But you see, as our culture began to evolve, we began to think, you know, I don't know if that's going to make me happy. And I think what I'd like to do is try to get out of this marriage and maybe find an easier way to get out of it. And so we came up with no-fault divorce. And so when we come up and with our plan, with no-fault divorce, now all of a sudden, you have seen divorces begin to multiply. And so what we did, we took the end of that verse where it says, what therefore God has joined together, let let not man separate. We said, well, no, I think it's okay. Let's see if we can do that. And so we did that, and all of a sudden, you began to see increases in divorce. You began to see increase in broken families. You began to see increase in poverty. And on and on and on. Well, that wasn't enough. So then we came and said, well, let's back up over here to where it says verse 7 and 8. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So now recently we've said, well, God's plan is it'd be a man and a woman that would be married. And we say, no, I tell you, in our plan, let's say that we could have same-sex marriage. And so let's, let's use our plan. And, and so we can, can uh, maybe bring, bring joy and fulfillment and happiness outside of his plan. So we're going to come up and do same-sex marriage. We're moving away from his plan. Hey, but you know, that's not enough because we're moving at warp speed. Let's look at verse six. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now, even today, we're not even doing male and female. We're getting fluid genders over here. And we don't, we're trying to push back on having a male and a female and a he and a she and all of that. You see, that's our plan, but that's not God's plan. And we're exactly where Satan was talking to Jesus, and he was questioning God's plan. 
And Jesus says, hey, you don't test the Lord. You don't tempt the Lord, okay? He's got his plan. You stay his plan. And the more that we mess up with his plan, the worse we get. And I don't believe anybody can quote anything in history that they said, uh, now I looked at the Bible and I see what God's plan was, but you know, we came up with a better plan and I think it's worked out well. It's not happened. And if you keep on traveling down that road, it's just going to be a road towards destruction. We are playing right in the tempter's hand, questioning God's plan. Number three, questioning God's ways. Well, the last temptation was to question God's ways. In verse 8, he says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Now, most people believe this is just like a visionary thing. It's almost as if he had a slide projector, I guess. But it's almost a visionary thing because naturally there's no mountain you could stand where you could see all the kingdoms. But it's almost as if there, he provided this vision to see all the great kingdoms of the world. And I love the way he phrased it, and all of their glory. And it's like the guy that's trying to say you swamp land and he says, it's a great sunset. Uh, but I'm not going to show you all the swampland. And, and yet Jesus is smart enough to know that I can see the glory of all these kingdoms, but I can also see there's a lot of sin and depravity that's going on. There's a lot of hurt lives. And so, so he sends all of this and, and lets him see it. And then he says, look what he says to him. All of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I can give you every one of these if you fall down and worship me bypass the cross. Jesus, you're talking to the guy that can give you what you came to get. That is the kingdoms of the world. You know, your, your hope was to bring all the kingdoms, uh, all these nations into the kingdom of God. And he says, I'm the guy that can deliver this. And so if you just worship me, you can have this. And you see, you can bypass the cross. You can go with his ways and not God's ways. And there's a lot less pain. But you see, what Jesus understood is that God's ways were the best ways and it was the only way and he knew that before he could sit on his royal throne he was going to have to hang on a wooden cross he was going to endure suffering shame ridicule pain betrayal and rejection Jesus had this in mind from the very beginning of his earthly ministry that there was going to be a combination of royal kingship and suffering servanthood. It was attested by his baptism, and it was essential to his mission. He knew that was a part of his mission. What Satan was saying is, save the pain, save the difficulty. And Jesus says, no. God's ways are the best ways. And God is the one that demands worship and to be glorified and what you're asking me to do is to deprive God of glory and worship and that I will not do because this is what God's word says you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve that's it and he says be gone worship the Lord your God and you serve him and serve him only God's ways. The Bible says God's ways are higher than our ways. Sometimes we don't understand God's ways. But for following his will and his plan, I guarantee we follow his ways, it will be the right thing that will bring honor and glory to him. And it will be the best thing for us. And Jesus could look at the cross and see the pain, the ridicule, the shame, everything that was there, but he knew it was worth it. 
And he knew what it was going to take in order to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. He says, I'm willing to do that. Now, as I read this and I looked over here and it talked about um, questioning, you know, God's ways and stuff. You know, at the very first point, I mentioned to you that sometimes we think there's this middle ground. I, I just can't find anywhere in Scripture where that's true. I think you, you're having to choose sides. You're either in God's kingdom or you're in Satan's kingdom. Folks, there's, there's not a middle ground. There's, there's not a, hey, do you want to do the things that God's called you to do? And I'm scared that too many of us get to the point where we think, well, you know, that, that's kind of getting a little radical out there to do all the things that God wants me to do, but I don't want to go over here to the Satan stuff. You know, that really sounds dark and foreboding. So I think I'm just going to stand in the Danny stuff. Okay? I kind of like just doing the Danny stuff. You know, there's nowhere in Scripture that says there's Danny stuff. It's either God's stuff or Satan's stuff. And Satan is over here, and what he is doing is he is deluding me to thinking that when I'm doing my thing, it's just kind of a Danny thing. It's good. It's not great. God's great, but it's not really bad because Satan's bad. I'm just kind of doing a good thing. I'm a Danny thing. And he has deluded me to think that I've got this category. There is no middle category. It's black and white. It's two kingdoms that are colliding. You're either part of the kingdom of God or you are supporting the kingdom of Satan. And you are saying anything that he switches that allegiance from God, he's supplanting God in your life, you're following his ways on there. The very first temptation with Adam and Eve, do you think that Eve said, hey, I'm going to go the way of the serpent? Not at all. You know what Eve did? She looked at that fruit and she said, hmm, look good to the eyes. Looked like it was going to be good to eat. It would give me more wisdom. I'm going to do it. Everything in there was for me. It wasn't, hey, I like this serpent. I'm going to go follow and do what the serpent says. No, all the serpent did was just begin to pitch a few ideas her way. And then once she committed that sin, there was that separation of her and God. Because guess what? She was no longer in God's will, no longer God's ways, no longer God's plans. They were separated. They're over here. Satan's got it right where they want them. That's good. You don't need to be sitting there putting uh, satanic tattoos all over you to be supporting his kingdom. All you need to be doing is not doing what God's called us to do. And when we don't do that, we're either serving one kingdom or we're serving another. And we make that choice. Satan's main objective is to supplant God and get you to make yourself the God of your life. That's his objective. So it means that we can't go walking out of this building thinking, I'm not really going to be sold on God's stuff, but at least I'm not sold on Satan's stuff. No, he will have accomplished his goal, and that is to supplant God and to get you to make yourself the God of your life, okay? Now, here's the last thing. You can follow Jesus' example and live victoriously overcoming temptation. You can follow Jesus' example and live victoriously overcoming temptation. Jesus came to show us how to live the human life the way God intended it to be lived. He lived a victorious life because he lived perfectly in the power of the Holy Spirit. Guess what, folks? That same Holy Spirit that Jesus has, you have. 
When you receive Christ as Savior, it says his spirit comes into your heart. You have his Holy Spirit living within you. You have everything in your power to overcome any temptation. It's not like the Holy Spirit comes in and says, hey, I'm good for 80%. I can probably help you with 80%. Now, there's a 20% that is just too tough. I can't even handle that. You're just on your own. You're probably going to fall anyway. So, hey, I'll just pat you on the rear and say, good job, big guy. Get up and let's go do it again. That's not correct. It is the Holy Spirit. And he says he's given you all the power to be able to resist any temptation. Now, here we are, and we're going to be falling in two camps over here. And that is, I know we're going to say, and I'm going to tell you this, no one's going to be perfect, okay? But the problem is, I think that when we hear no one's going to be perfect, we take that, and then we begin to go on our sin meter to figure out how many sins do we think we can do that are okay before we get really bad sin. One. And I don't want you to walk out of here. I don't want anybody ever walking out of here saying, hey, pastor says, okay, we can just kind of sin a little bit, just don't sin a lot of bit. No, I would say walk out of here and say, guess what? I'm going to follow Jesus' example. And he was victorious in living a sin-free life. That's my goal. Now, what happens? Oh, if I slip up and I mess up, God's word says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so you know that, that forgiveness is there. You know that God can forgive you. And no matter how much you've messed up, there is hope because it's grace. It's the grace of God. And because of the grace of God, we can have a relationship with him and we can keep moving in our lives. But I don't want anyone to ever get to the point to where we just feel real comfortable with sin. And we just think it's okay. There's God's kingdom. There's Satan's kingdom. They're colliding. They're battling for hearts and souls every day. They are battling, he, they are battling for your soul. God loves you, Satan hates you. But he wants your loyalty, he wants to supplant God in your life. You make the choice as to which one you're going with. Let me tell you in closing, 1 Peter chapter 2. Look what it says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, an example leaving you an example so you may follow in his steps. You know what the imagery of that word is? It is like, it's almost like walking in the sand or in the mud and you leave footprints. He says, he leaves you an example to follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself. That means we are to live a holy life and we are to put ourselves in the hands of God and just say, I trust you. I trust your will. I trust your plans. I trust your ways. I'm there. I want to live that life and live that life for you. I don't have these on the screen. So you just got to be a good listener and a good writer down. Two questions. Whenever something comes in your life, I want you to ask these two questions. Number one, is this what God wants for me? Is this what God wants for me? Whatever it is that comes into your life, looks like a temptation, whatever, ask this question. Is this what God wants for me? Number two, can I do this and truly love God and delight in him? Can I do this? 
and truly love God and delight in him. Can I do this? Truly love God and delight in him. I love the last part, delight in him. That's really kind of where it puts it in, kind of twist a little bit. Can I do this and love God? Well, I know that he'll forgive me or so. And delight in him? Ask those two questions. I mean, ask those questions. And then you follow the example of Christ. I'll tell you what, you could live a victorious Christian life. And every one of us could go from this place, living out the purpose that God has called us to, going with his will, going with his plans, and walking according to his ways. And you know what, when that happens, man, revival can take place. God can change individual hearts. He can change the hearts of a church. He can change the hearts of a community. He can change the hearts of a city. He can change the hearts of a state and of a nation and of the world. If we get serious about it, to live that victorious life. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your son. I just thank you, Lord, that um, he loved us so much that he went through the rigors of all the temptations and was just getting nailed on all sides. But yet he stayed the course to be perfect so that he could be that perfect sacrifice to provide that hope for us so that we could have a relationship with you and we could be adopted into your family. And we could live with your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And then one day when we die, we step into a heaven and we spend eternity with you. And Lord, we thank you for that. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.